Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer your emails. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron, she writes in and says, I've been working as an advocate for survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse for the past two months. Something that I've noticed is when I verbalize my support or validate their experiences through statements like, I believe you, my eyes, my eyes start to tear up. I start to well up with tears. I don't have this reaction when I'm listening, though. Advocates are advised not to cry in front of our clients because it takes the focus off of them. I worry that, since emotional support is a fundamental part of my job, I will unintentionally start crying in front of a client and irreparably and irreparably harm the relationship. Do you know why saying these types of things would trigger me to cry? Do you have any theories as to why I tear up when verbally offering emotional support to others who are going through painful experiences? End of email. My answer to you, Anonymous Serpentier Patron, is you're asking me, you know, why am I crying in these situations when, you know, these clients are talking about domestic violence and sexual abuse, and I say things like, oh, I believe you. You're, you're validating, and you're like starting to cry. You're saying, why am I crying? You're crying because you're a human being and you're healthy. That's why you're crying. <laughs> Someone is telling you that they've been victimized and you validate them and you empathize and you feel their pain. That's what empathy means. You literally feel their pain. You understand that you might be the first person to have ever validated them and you have a lot of feelings about that and you cry, which is 100% normal. I would say people who don't have an urge to cry, there's something wrong with them. The other thing is, is why are you, why are your supervisors telling you that you can't cry? There is no evidence that crying will harm the relationship. There's no evidence that crying will automatically take the focus off of the client. It's silly. It's patriarchal. It is awful. It is emotional shaming. What is wrong with crying? Now, if your client is talking about being victimized and you are listening and you're like, you're into it, you're empathizing, you're like, you know what, I believe you. I believe that you were victimized in this way. And, you know, screw all those other people for not believing you and not supporting you. And screw the perpetrator for doing that to you. And you start to have emotions and you start to cry a little bit and you uh, continue to listen and your client's like, oh, you know, and maybe even you mention it. You're like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm crying a little bit right now because I'm just feeling uh, the intensity of what you're telling me. You know, please go on. Tell me more. Um, you know, that is huge. Uh, everyone out there, uh, whether you have a therapist or not, imagine if your therapist did that. Your therapist was so moved. And I know some of you have therapists that have done this. And I know some of you are therapists who do this. That would be very impactful. Like, wow, you know, my therapist is, you know, into this relationship. They're taking it seriously. Contrast that with whatever sort of patriarchal notion your supervisors have about crying, which is your client is talking about something difficult. You say, I believe you. And you start to well up with tears. And then you just start bawling. And you're just like, I'm just having a really hard day right now. And I just, you know, the stories you're telling me are just really intense. And I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, that's making it about you. But I know you're not going to do that, an anonymous up to your patron, because you're not a monster. <laughs> and you're not some fictional straw man that doesn't exist. So 
cry if you want to. There's nothing you can do about it, you know. Uh, go ahead and, you know, if, if you don't want to cry, and there are times when I, as a therapist or as a professor, am moved to tears, but, you know, I'm not particularly interested in it, so I try not to, you know, which is which is fine. But, uh, and if you, you know, if you feel like, you know, I just don't want to really want to cry right now, that's fine. But if you are uncontrollably tearing up, there's nothing you can do about that. And why would you, why would you do anything about it? It'd be, I, I always bring it to this. If uh, one of your clients tells a funny story and you laugh with them, why would you hold back? Laughter is the same thing as crying. It is a physiological visual representation of what is going on in our heart. But with laughing, it's fine. Anger is fine. But crying is womanly and weak and wrong. And all that is nonsense. And if any of you consider yourself a feminist or anti-patriarchal, you will not give in to that notion. All right. This next question, upper tier patron Avery from Canada. She writes, can you be traumatized by dreams? I frequently have nightmares and they are extremely vivid. I have dreams of being sexually assaulted, murdered, stalked, etc. Sometimes when I wake up, I have intense anxiety and feel as if these things were real. So, can you be traumatized by a dream? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. Our uh, mind has a hard time differentiating between dreams, visualization, and, and real events. So, uh, you can absolutely be traumatized by a dream. However, most of the time we forget our dreams or we forget them rather quickly upon awaking, you know, waking up. So it's a little unusual, <clears throat> you know, all of us have nightmares, all of us have difficult dreams. Um, you know, the other night I had, a, uh, I have a, I have a theme, maybe a lot of people do, where someone like a group of people are out to get me, you know, like, it's usually like, I'm trying to find my phone and I. I can't get home or, you know, I'm not, I don't have any pants on or something. And there's like a two to five sort of, I don't know, gangstery people, you know, mobsters after me and I'm trying to run away and it's, and it's intense, you know, it can be very vivid. And upon waking, I'm like, Oh, I'm glad that was a dream. And then it just goes away. The, the idea is that our uh, brains are, um, organized such that during the dream, it feels real enough. But when we wake up, we try, uh, you know, there's a mechanism that sort of kicks in that, that, that purges it from our memory. Because if all of our, which, because again, nightmares are very common. If all of our nightmares were remembered in the same way that a difficult experience in life was remembered, then we would be you know, riddled with all sorts of traumatic memories and PTSD. So the the thing you might want to look at, Avery, are two things. One, it's possible that you have some kind of issue with with sleep, meaning that as you're waking up, your sleep is your your sleep cycles aren't functioning optimally, and uh, you might want to talk to a sleep specialist, and because uh, it's possible that. If your sleep was more optimized and more regular, then one, you won't remember your dreams because you don't wake up in the middle of them. And two, they won't traumatize you. Uh, I don't know that, obviously, but that would be one thing. And also, it's possible that you have been traumatized in real life 
and or by I guess by your dreams and have PTSD and are having nightmares because of that and the dreams are just triggering those traumas and you need to get trauma treatment to reduce all of your PTSD symptoms, including the nightmares. But I don't know if that's the case for you. All right. Uh, So just a little reminder when you're emailing in to make sure that you read the instructions on the website. Um, It's really, by the way, the only way to contact me truly is to go through the website, psychologyinseattle.com, click on the contact button, fill out the form there. Uh, I generally get all the emails, by the way. Even if you just want to send a nice note or something, um, it's the surefire way to get to me. Also, as I was saying, make sure you read all the disclaimers. There's a lot of caveats, you know, because I'm a clinician and I can't provide therapy over the podcast. So there's that. Also, um, uh, you you, want to not type too much because, you know, back in the day, five, ten years ago, I I, would have been able to read uh, you know all the long emails i i, I physically you know there's it's impossible for me to read all the emails if they're really really long so you know you want to try to be as concise as possible sometimes people will say hey if you want to know more uh, reply and sometimes i do so if you're like oh you know i, I hope what if he wants more information you know feel free to just be like hey if you need more information email me back um also know that when you Email me, uh, make sure you fill out the bottom uh, because it'll say, you know, is it okay if I read it on the podcast? Because sometimes you just want to send me a note. You don't want it to be read on the podcast, that kind of thing. All right. Famous patron Junie, she wrote in. You can check her out on YouTube. She has a wonderful YouTube channel called Junie Desiree in which she does uh, various different arts and crafts. Um, She makes journals and they're really great, but really mostly... It's like food for the soul. She is a very nice person and talks about life and about her cat and stuff. And so check out Junie Desiree. Uh, But she's a famous patient. She wrote in and says, I'm loving systems theory at the moment. I'm thinking about it quite a lot since I moved into a new house with a lovely family. How much does the system you're in determine the roles you play versus your own personality? Uh, just chime in here. Yeah, this is a very intelligent question, uh, difficult to answer, but yeah, it's basically both. So, and this is the way I word it. I, I don't, I've never heard it worded this way. You know, when it comes to systems theory, I'll tell you, I, my understanding of it has emerged partly from, uh, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants regarding those who came before me, but a lot of the way that I frame it is invented by me because I feel like a lot of the ways people describe systems theory, it just doesn't really click with me. And so I, I, I have ways of wording it that it just, it helps me to understand it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the way that I teach it is that when you enter a family or you join a family or something, or a system, sorry, like when you go to work, for example, you get a new job and there's, 10 other people at the office. Well, you know, you're joining a system and you will both be elected to play a role and you will volunteer to play that role. It's both. And it's subconscious, you know, it's, it's almost never a conscious thing. So, uh, you're, it's both, you know, so you're saying, um, well, that's not really answering a question. You're saying, you know, how much, uh, does the system 
uh, determine the role or and how much is it based on your personality? So um, it, it's similar answer. It's similar in that it's both. So both the system needs you to play a certain role and will force you into it. And it will, uh, the system will choose you based on your personality and your personality and your preferences will push you in a direction. So everything kind of works together. But if the system, so let's say that, let's use a family because that's typically what we're talking about. So let's say that uh, you're in a family and you're, you know, the third child and you're emerging into, you know, tween years and it's time that you start really solidifying your role. Well, let's say that the family is going through a tough time. The parents are going through divorce. And often the family will elect and someone will volunteer to play a scapegoat, someone who will take the pressure and the eyes and the focus and the criticism away from the parents. So the child steps forward and says, this is subconscious, the child steps forward and say, I will become a lightning rod for negativity because I would rather be criticized and scapegoated by the family and seen as the bad child than deal with the uh, you know conflict between the parents. It's much pre- preferable for me to be a scapegoat than to have to deal with the parents fighting all the time and having no other outlet of tension in this family. And if I can rebel and be a problem child, then my parents might actually focus on me instead of each other, which will keep this family together. That kind of thing. This is kind of a classic example. And it happens a lot, by the way. And uh, so which child is going to step forward to be that scapegoat? Is it going to be one of your older siblings? Well, let's say your two older siblings are already playing pretty important roles that are needed during this difficult time. Your oldest sibling is playing the star, the delegate, the um, perfect child, the kid who's doing straight A's and, you know, is on the cheerleading squad and on track team and, you know, is loved by everybody. And your other sibling is being the quiet one and the compassionate one. So there's no scapegoat. And you, as the youngest child, you're 10 years old, you might say, okay, you know, the, the family will both want you to play the scapegoat and you will step into that role because you understand that it's important. Again, this is all subconscious, right? Um, and let's say, but let's say that your personality is more quiet. You're not, and more reserved and more of a homebody. To be a scapegoat, it's, preferable that you're going to smoke pot, you're going to stay out past curfew, you're going to skip classes, you're going to not do well in school, you're going to talk back to your parents, you're going to hang out with the bad kids, you're going to have, you know, funny clothes and rebellious hair and listen to nasty music. And uh, if you're reserved, so so let's say that, you know, oldest child is delegate, second child is kind of uh, the good compassionate one, and you are really unsuited to play a rebellious child or the scapegoat. Now, there are other ways to scapegoat. Like you could become the depressed one who thinks about suicide. You could be the reserved one who locks themselves in your room all the time and and you scapegoat through withdrawal. But let, let's say for the sake of argument that it, you just really, as the third child, do not fit well into a scapegoat role. Well, as you start to gravitate towards a different role, 
maybe you're the maybe you start being very compassionate and then your middle sibling uh subconsciously and the family notices this that wait there's no scapegoat there's no uh, uh, obvious distraction from the difficulty going on between the parents and so the middle child might say okay i will be the scapegoat and i've seen this many many times the issue is the more healthy the family the more flexible the system will be to individual needs and the less severe the roles need to be. So for example, if the parents are going through a divorce and there's a fair, there's some conflict, but the, there's enough differentiation and, and not a lot of uh, severe emotional reactivity and, and harm happening, then the delegate child, the oldest child, they might get straight A's, they might do well in school, but when, and and do it well in life and draw a lot of you know positive attention from society, but when that oldest child is having a bad day, or when that oldest child doesn't want to get straight A's anymore, or when the oldest child doesn't want to join the track team because they just want to hang out with their friends, then the system and the individual will be flexible to that. So there's nothing wrong with having roles in a family. You know, you got the jokester and the You've got the the mediator. You know, there's various different roles that people will play, and parents play roles too. You know, one parent's the fun one, and the other parent is the responsible one, and that's okay. But it's all about is it flexible to the needs of the individual and the needs of the family. It the more unhealthy a family is, the more rigid the roles become because. Essentially, the the way to think about it is that if a family is struggling a lot, you know, 24-7, then the delegate and the scapegoat and the reserved one, the invisible one, they don't have wiggle room. They have to play their role all the time. There's no option. And as soon as they fall out of that role and sort of want to be flexible, the system will force them back in because the system desperately needs, you know. Let's say you have a very low differentiated family, a lot of conflict, a lot of difficulty, a lot of um, not taking responsibility for your own feelings, not a lot of you know eye positions, that kind of thing. And the the middle child being the um, we're, we're saying the middle child is going to be the scapegoat, and then the youngest child is going to be like the the invisible one. Let's just say that. And as the invisible one, you start wanting to be more involved. Maybe you start kind of joking around. Maybe you start rebelling a little bit. Well, the system can't handle that. It's too chaotic. So let's read another part of your email here. Is it inevitable that I will become part of the system and take on certain roles in the household that will keep, that will help make it function? Yeah. I mean, even if you avoid becoming a part of the system, that's essentially playing a role, if that makes any sense. Another question you have here, should I reject the roles the system tries to give me because it isn't healthy or should I lean into them because there is a need for it and will help? End of email. Yeah, this is a good question. And, you know, famous page in Juni, you're really exhibiting a high level of understanding of systems theory, uh, which sometimes my students don't exhibit. So I'm, I'm really quite proud of you on this. And I feel good about spreading the news about uh, system theory, which is, I think, very eye-opening. Um, so yeah, you're saying, okay, the system is trying to give me a role. Should I reject it? Now, it depends. 
the question you want to ask yourself is, is this role that the fam that the system's trying to force on me and the, the one I kind of feel tugged towards, is this role giving everyone the best chance of getting their needs met? You know, like, let's say that the system needs a mother and they're sort of pushing you into the mother position. So the question and, and that there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but you want to ask yourself, you know, does me playing the mother role, does it help me get my needs met? Does it help other people get their needs met? Is it rigid? You know, if you're playing the mother role and you're always the mother role and you're never allowed to play a different role where you are asking for help, you know, mothers aren't supposed to ask for help right now. Of course, mothers should ask for help, <laughs> but in terms of the mother role, you know they're they're supposed they're the all good mother. They're always there helping everyone and not thinking of themselves. So, if you're being elected to that role of mother, are you allowed when you need to to ask for help and say, "Hey, you know, I'm struggling," and someone else can become the mother for a bit? And that that was what was proposed and found by pioneers in family therapy, notably Carl Whitaker, Virginia Satir, these people, what they found was that dysfunctional families got very rigid with their roles and, and things became very stuck. And they found that it was helpful to dislodge the family through chaos so that the family could reorganize itself with different sorts of roles and and that sort of getting into the weeds a little bit is that there's a homeostasis that systems will have there's a a lot of mechanisms in place in any kind of system whether it's a a cell in your body or a climate or a, or a family system or a you know social system at work there's a lot of systems in place that keep it as it is everyone needs to play their role everyone needs to be predictable which has its pros and its cons, right? The pro to being predictable and having a homeostasis is that you don't have to rethink everything every day and things are predictable and you can kind of, you when you need help and, and you need to cry on someone's shoulder, you go to the mother role person and you just know that that's going to happen. Whereas uh, a con to homeostasis is that if it's, not very functional as a homeostasis, then it will create a lot of problems that are ongoing and it makes it very hard to change one way or the other, whether positive or negative. Then we have this other thing called morphogenesis, which, which is when systems go through changes. And so as family therapists, pioneers anyway, and I'm, I'm mostly on board with this idea that our job is to figure out what's wrong and then two, we have to actually shake up and what they call perturb the system so that the system will be open to change because you can tell a family, hey, you know, here are the roles and, and here's the pattern. But unless unless there's a complete reworking of the system and all the rules and all the roles, then the system will always gra almost always gravitate back to where it was before, which will you know, eliminate any kind of positive efforts that people are making. So sometimes that requires a very drastic uh, intervention from the therapist where you really have to push a family almost like off the edge of a cliff so that chaos 
ensues, and then you can kind of mold things. And then you want to re-solidify the system in a new homeostasis, uh, which is kind of counter to the way a lot of people think, right? It's like, we should always be changing and we should always be adjusting. And uh, there's pros to that, but the, the con to always changing and always inventing and always innovating is every day you wake up in a family and you don't know what's happening. You don't know who's playing what role. You don't know what you're supposed to do. And uh, we play by those rules. I mean, just think about your own family, about like who does what. And it gets, there's obvious things like chores, but much more relevant is who initiates date night, who initiates sex, <laughs> who initiates uh, TV time, who, who uh, initiates hugs. Who is the one who is is the one who looks on the bright side? Who's the one who points out the dangers of life? You know, who's the one who um, keeps things calm? You know, there's these things that we there's these roles that we play, and even though you'd like to think that your behavior and your personality is yours, it's at least a good portion of your behavior and motivation is shaped by the role that you have established in your system that you're in. Now, a lot of times your role will uh, transport to different systems because you know how to play that role really well. But you might notice that in some systems and some social groups, you will play a completely different role. In one system, you're a leader. In the other system, you're the follower. In one system, you're the funny person. In the other system, you're the cautious one. And that's because that particular system is organized around the need for you to play that role and the intolerance for you to play a different role. So uh, when we can zoom out and look at the system, then we can understand a lot of things. And it's very important for us clinicians to understand this because so many clients, individual people will come into our office asking for help. But the problem is at least in part, if not entirely, a result of the system that that one person is in. And this is where marriage and family therapy really shines is that uh, we're taught this. Now, how many marriage and family therapists actually follow this notion is up for debate, but it's important for us to understand that we are not individuals. We, we do not, we don't exist in a vacuum and that we are social creatures that exist within a group. Anyway, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Famous patron Lyndon wrote in and said, I'm reading Game of Thrones for the first time ever, and humiliation is a recurring theme, partly where the inspiration of this email came from. For example, let me ask some questions. What construct or constructs are similar to humiliation in the research? Okay, just chiming in here. Yeah, I don't really know. The, the The literature in my field is so vast that there could be this huge treasure trove of literature on humiliation that I'm just not aware of. Uh, I took a little bit of time looking at all my books and resources, and I looked in the research literature. Uh, I didn't find a lot on humiliation. I found a lot on shame, which is, uh, you could argue, a, a very similar uh, concept. 
But the only thing that popped into my mind is the inferiority complex, which was discussed, you know, 100 years ago. Um, But I will say that in psychodynamic theory, shame and humiliation is, you know, they are discussed, probably not often enough. And uh, lately, you know, uh, famous patron Lyndon, this is an interesting email because I've been thinking about how we need to think about humiliation more often. Because I've been, when I do my reaction videos to 90 Day Fiance on YouTube, I'm noticing that some of the cast members seem to exhibit what I would term as humiliation trauma. Because, and I don't know, I, I can only speculate about, you know, these shows, and it's hard to know what's fabricated and what's not. But but I, I started thinking about, you know, clients that I teach, uh, that I've uh, treated, and people that I've worked with, and and they start thinking, you know, I think this is a thing. So many of us have been humiliated, or all of us have been humiliated, particularly when we're young. I, I think we're, uh, it's, it's easy to forget how humiliating some of our experiences were when we were, when we were young. I mean, I can think of probably dozens of experiences when I was a kid where I was deeply humiliated. And as an adult, I can look back and kind of laugh at it, but you know, when we're kids, especially when we're not taken care of well enough, you know, not enough attunement, uh, humiliation can be deeply, deeply troubling to us. Uh, again, because we're young, we don't know how to regulate. We don't know how to see things. It's easy to look back, you know, kids, they'll get over it. You know, what are you going to do? You know, I I don't believe that. I think that some of the some of the most intense emotional experiences I've ever had in my life were when I was a very young child, you know, five to ten years old. I can remember one time where I, well, actually, even going further back, I'm in kindergarten, and one of my favorite outfits that I would wear, um, and I didn't have a lot of outfits because my family wasn't particularly rich, but one of the things that my mom bought me was this red jumper suit. I don't know what you call it, but it was, it's like a mechanic suit, right? Where it's, it's all one, it's a onesie essentially. And it zips from, you know, crotch to, to neck. And it was red and it had all these patches on it, It had like a Pepsi patch and an American pet patches were kind of big in the mid seventies. I had a, a jacket with a bunch of patches on it, like NASA and stuff. And I, was wearing this red jumper suit and I was in kindergarten and I remember, you know, to go to the bathroom, I had to unzip it all the way down, right? Well, I'm coming out of the bathroom and I can't get the zipper up and the zipper is stuck um, in the crotch position. And so the whole thing is open, you know, you can see my chest and everything. And although who cares, right? I'm five or six years old and you can see my, you know, my chest, but somehow I found it deeply troubling that I d- didn't have a shirt to go. I think I was just told, you know, I was a kid. I went to the beach. I wasn't ashamed of my body as a five-year-old, but something about being at school and not having a shirt on, you know, having the ability to see my chest. Now, looking back again, as an adult, I'd just be like, dude, just, you know, get a bobby pin and, and you know, pin it close. It doesn't matter. <laughs> But something about it just completely wrecked me, and to this because I remember it vividly, and I 
uh, somehow I came out of the bathroom and I grabbed someone and said, Hey, I can't, you know, I, I, someone give me a jacket. And I, I was a very big kid, uh, throughout my, you know, life. And up until I was about 20 years old, I was always like one of the, I was a gargantuan kid, but there was one kid, Brandon Stoddard, who was bigger than me <laughs> and he had a jacket. He had a, a Levi's, uh, jean jacket. And he lent it to me, and I just ran home. Uh, I lived about a mile away from my elementary school. And I, and by the way, <laughs> mid-70s parenting, I walked by myself to and from, uh, maybe not kindergarten, I think my sister and mother, but in first grade, I walked by myself, like sometimes without any neighbor kids, a mile <laughs> to school <laughs> in the rain and snow and sleet. You know, obviously, you'd get called, CPS would be called if, if you did that today. But um, but a lot of my best memories are from that and some bad ones. But anyway, so I can remember this vividly. And to me, this was a humiliation trauma. I My clothing wasn't working. And I was deeply, deeply humiliated by this. You know, like, and you look back, you're like, dude, like, who cares? <laughs> like, let it go. But when you're 5 or 10 or 15, like, there's we have so few resources and perspective to fall back on and power for that matter that you know we can be deeply humiliated so let's give someone you know a background where they were humiliated often you know bullying or older siblings or parents you know parents can be cruel and can make fun of you you know look at that look at you did it you know some parents can be real nasty sometimes right and we will frame this as verbally abusive or something, but I think sometimes the way it's received by the child is humiliation. They are being humiliated, and it's different from shame, right? Shame is close to humiliation, but humiliation is, I think, particular. And what I see in the show, 90 Day Fiance, is some of the cast members, um, if you're familiar, Angela being one, and I think Evelyn maybe too, I'm not quite sure, but definitely Angela, where when there when when she enters into a potential conflict and she knows that she's on TV right she she's on a reality TV show she comes out swinging verbally sometimes physically and she overpowers she bullies she yells over she screams she will not let other people talk whether it's michael or uh, which is her husband or um, her husband's extended family, or even other cast members. You know, she's she's done it to other cast members. She won't let them talk. She will talk over and dominate and maybe even stand over the person. And it's abusive. It's awful. It's awful to watch, honestly. And it, it's kind of traumatizing to watch. But she will sprinkle in often these phrases like, I'm not going to be made a fool of. You're not going to make a fool of me. And it doesn't seem to fit. It's like, Who's making a fool out of you? And you're making a fool out of yourself. I mean, look at you. Someone just asked you a, a, an innocent little question. All you had to do is just say, yeah, I don't know, or, hmm, you know, food for thought. But instead, you just got so obnoxious. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the show, uh, you might not know the infamous scene where she she flashes people in anger in a, like, sexually abusive way. <laughs> I mean, it was interesting to watch. And... And then she, she'll storm off, you know, before, as she's sort of running out of steam, she'll storm off. She won't let you talk because 
I think she's terrified to the core that if she gives other people power in a conflict, they will humiliate her. And she will do everything in her power to shut the other person down so that they won't humiliate her. And interestingly enough, because this is projective identification based in all likelihood, meaning that she internalized a relationship where someone humiliated her and she felt humiliated and then recreates the relationship later on, uh, she actually humiliates herself. So in her efforts to avoid humiliation, she's doing everything in her power to avoid humiliation. She is almost always humiliating herself to the public and to everyone in the room. They're just looking at her like, what are you doing? You know, And that's the nature of these kinds of relational traumas is that as we recreate them, we, you know, we're trying to avoid something, but in, but in fact, we actually create it like abandonment trauma for borderline or preoccupied folks. They will be desperately trying to defend themselves against abandonment, but as they overshoot, they will actually create rejection and abandonment and thus be alone, that kind of thing. Anyway, so it's the same, I think, with humiliation trauma. Uh, you go on famous patron Linden to say, does humiliation ever serve a good purpose? That's a good question. It depends. Obviously, I think you'd know that, um, you know, shaming a child for being different, you know, for, for having a different body size or whatever. Uh, obviously that's not good, (laughs) but shaming a child or an adult for being violent, you know, that can be helpful. Shame, has a purpose. And we often frame it as this universally bad thing, but nothing that we do as humans is universally bad, you know, in terms of the fundamental uh, core of it, right? Like sadness helps us, anger helps us, and shame helps us. Because when we are shamed, it's it's very uh, motivating, right? The problem is, is that shame is overused, you know, because of passing down relational traumas and and that kind of stuff. But, you know, you take someone who is texting while driving and they're like, I can drive, I can multitask. And then uh, someone shames them. You know, I'm trying to think of a viable way of shaming. Like you pull up next to them and you honk at them and you say, get off your phone. You know, because they almost cut you off. You pull up next to them and nicely, you know, you don't freak them out, but you're like, get off your phone. The person on their phones, they're going to remember that. And honestly, I can just think of times myself when that has happened, right? Like I'm not paying attention and I try to get over, you know, I try to switch lanes on the highway and someone honks at me, you know, and then they pull up next to me and they give me the finger. Like, I'm not happy about that moment, but. I remember it. And the next time I'm about to switch lanes, I, you know, I check my blind spot. (laughs) So shame has its place. It's just that it's often overused, right? Um, So then, of course, we have cancel culture and da-da-da. You ask a question, is there a relationship between humiliation and humility, or is it that it is just linguistic? End of question. It's a good question. I don't know. It's not really my area of expertise. I'm guessing there is a linguistic connection between humiliation and humility. Um, But in terms of concepts, you know, they're very different things, right? Um, But 
humility has a pretty broad vibe to me. But the main vibe of humility is to have an appropriate level of whatever's the opposite of hubris, right? Another question is decompensation in narcissism a form of hum- of humiliation? Um, answer is yeah, that's one way of putting it. Is that as the narcissist because underneath the narcissistic defense is a deep sense of worthlessness, and you could say humiliation. And as the narcissistic individual decompensates for one reason or another, lack of narcissistic supply or some kind of abundance of criticism or something, they cannot rely anymore on the defense that they are superior, and they fall into a deep sense of shame and humiliation. Going to another question here. You have spoken about a sort of base schema in various personalities, for example, fear of separation or abandonment and borderline defective self and narcissism. What kind of personality structures, defensive structures, could have a relationship to humiliation? End of question. Um, I love this question for a number of reasons, <laughs> famous patron Lennon, because it's so smart. And you're using my terms, I believe, that I, I've never heard anyone use before, you know, defensive structures. Like, I, I feel like I've did I invent that term? <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I invented some things and, and I'm like, how do I know that? I mean, how do I know that someone just say that to me? But, um, but you know, now that I think about it, there's not a lot of people in my field who, uh, as their job, talk and talk and talk about, about various things. You know, like as a professor there are certain classes that I teach and certain lectures that I give. And it, you know, it tends to be a little repetitive. Whereas as a podcaster, I'm, I'm talking about new things almost all the time, like humiliation. I've never, I've never talked about, you know, in detail, you know, humiliation. And so uh, sometimes I, I just feel so lucky as a podcaster and all you patrons who have been patrons. Thank you. Um, to be able to just, think and talk and explore and hear from you and, you know, converse with other people and research and look up the literature. And at the, you know, I, th- I think a side effect of all that is this development of a lingo that I have that because the lingo just doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Um, like relate, like humiliation trauma. I, you know, I, I, let me Google that because <laughs> Humiliation trauma. I'm going to try to see if that's anywhere. Oh, okay. Well, here's one article. How do I recover from trauma and humiliation? Humiliation trauma has been overlooked. Okay. (laughs) So I didn't invent it. Um, uh, An article by Linder, 2001. Uh, what differentiates trauma from humiliation? This is one of the questions this article tries to answer. Trauma may occur without humiliation, as in the case of natural disaster. However, humiliation may be the core uh, core agent of trauma. So, okay, I, yeah, I should probably always assume that everything in my field has already been discussed before, and I just haven't come across it, <laughs> and not have the hubris of assuming that I made something up, and not have the humiliation of claiming I made something up when um, I probably didn't. (laughs) But anyway, famous patron, you say, um, 
what sort of defensive structures would have a relationship to humiliation? I, I think I already answered that question, actually. Um, what are some unhealthy ways people try to heal from humiliation? Well, uh, protective identification, one of the reasons why we engage in it is because we're trying to heal. We're trying to recreate a past problematic relationship because we're hoping it will go differently this time so it'll be a corrective experience. The problem is, is that we will effectively recreate the past relationship so well that it will re-traumatize us. So that's one way people try. Um, another is they try to overcompensate for the humiliation by being aggressive and dominant, or they avoid, and obviously those don't work. Or they try to manage the way they come across through narcissism um, in, a, in such a severe way. But of course, that just creates a defensive structure. It doesn't, doesn't allow the opportunity for a corrective experience. A corrective experience for humiliation is in the face of you making a mistake, someone else who, you're, who you respect and you're connected to accepts you for who you are and doesn't and maybe criticizes you but doesn't doesn't reject you that's the corrective experience you know um you know if i had a client with humiliation trauma i would spend a lot of time as they're trying to push me away which they often are because they don't want to get vulnerable and humiliated i spend a lot of time seeing them and liking them and assuming that they have a soft core you know that kind of thing how does one recover from trivial humiliations or deep ones? Well, you know, as I said, uh, awareness and corrective experiences. Uh, but another thing that I work on with people with these kinds of traumas is really drilling into their heads that it's okay to be a fool. You know, what's wrong with being a fool? All of us are fools. <laughs> you know, what a fool believes. We were, it's okay to be humiliated. And all of our efforts to avoid being humiliated just create suffering. Just be, be a fool, you know? Don't act a fool on purpose, but, but if you make a fool out of yourself, you know, earlier I made a fool out of myself by assuming I made up a term like, like um, humiliation trauma. Uh, that's humiliating that, that I th had the hubris to think that I made something up. Something so fundamental as humiliation trauma, you know, uh, that's, and by the way, it kind of, uh, you know, is something that I have been humiliated about in the past and have vowed to never do again because it's just so, it's so arrogant, you know? And so, uh, this is kind of a sore spot for me, what I just did, but then I tell myself, you know, Hey, people make fools of themselves all the time. And, that's okay. Like, do your best. Don't, you know, try not to be arrogant. Try not to have hubris. Try not to make a fool out of yourself. But, you know, if you do, hey, you know, it's fine. When you are on your death, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to be looking back and saying, oh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I said that one thing in the podcast one time. You know, like, at least I don't think I will. <laughs> I guess it's possible I will. But certainly we don't think that that is the purpose of our lives is to avoid making a fool out of ourselves, right? Like, it's okay, you know? When other people make fools, of the, like for y'all, y'all right out there right now, on a scale from one to 10, in terms of how much of a, uh, how intensely bad it was that I was arrogant earlier, 
I'm just going to guess and say that you're going to put it at a lower number than how it feels to me. But if, but if you have a lower number than I do, then I'm mistaken as to how much of a fool I made of myself in the past. You know what I mean? Anyway, the last question you have famous patron Linden is, do you think there are particular patterns of humiliation that are characteristic of American society that might shed light on how society is today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, very, with a very brief amount of thinking about this, you know, the obvious answer is online shaming. We live in a world right now that, uh, whether you like it or not, your image and your personhood is online all the time. And there are, you know, the more you're out there, the more humiliation you go through. The other day, I I saw the cutest video on YouTube of this little primate and a pig. And they were just loving each other and being nice and playing with each other as a little pig and a little monkey or some kind of primate. And and I just thought, I just watched this, I don't know, it was like 10 minutes. I just, I could not stop watching and smiling and tearing up. And it was just the cutest, cutest thing. I don't think I'd ever seen something as cute as this. And there's a lot of cute things on the internet. I was overwhelmed with this video on YouTube that I posted it on my feed on YouTube. You know, like, I didn't realize this until kind of recently, but YouTube, if you're a, uh, it's like Instagram, like you can post just things instead of videos. Do you know what I'm saying? There's like a pay anyway. So I shared this video on my YouTube feed and I, w- I just thought, you know, just share this cute video. I'm sure people be like, oh, that's cute. A number of the comments were about like meat is murder and what's wrong with you that you, I, I, I don't, I don't remember what was the, the vibe was that there were some people that were like upset about this video somehow. And I, about like captivity of animals or something. And, you know, on some level it's like, okay, I can agree with that. But you know, I just thought it was a cute video. Is it, is everything, you know, it was humiliating because there were people out there and I didn't read the comments that detail, but it, it seemed as though, People were saying I was a bad person for for even for liking this video and for posting it. And so I was humiliated. I thought, oh, should I have thought about that before I posted it? And that's different. You know, if I had if I had seen if I had had a video on my phone and, and I was showing people around me, no one would have reacted that way, even if they had a a thought like, well, I wonder if those, or if they would have said something, it would have been like, oh my God, it's so cute. And they would have been like, are those animals being treated okay? I wonder if they're being treated okay. And then I would be like, oh yeah. I mean, one of the things about online comments is that uh, there's no way to have a conversation. You you can't have a conversation in the comment section. It It just does not work. There's no facial expressions. There's no tone of voice. And so, um, it it feels like all of these disjointed conversations. Anyway, so that's you know one sliver of the overall uh, situation of what's capable now of online shaming, you know, and the shame and the humiliation that we feel uh, when we're online. That is very unique. Like I said, because we don't have facial expressions, we don't have tone of voice. People are mean to each other online much more than they would be in person. 
And also there's, you know, some unique parts of humiliation that are happening right now regarding body shaming and face shaming. You know, 30 years ago, uh, the way that you dressed, I mean, certainly Americans were vain to some extent, but not anything close to the way they are today. I see families who have whole wardrobes for their three-year-old kid. When I was a kid, uh, or when I was growing up, you know, my in the 70s, 80s, 90s, kids would have like three outfits, you know, because a three-year-old is going to grow out of their uh, outfits. And two, who cares what a three-year-old is wearing? Three-year-olds don't need fashion. In some ways, I bet you in the 70s and 80s, it would have been obscene to dress your kid up as if they're an adult. You'd be like, why are you doing that? Like, that's a that's an infant. That's a toddler. Stop treating that. To-. But today, because of our materialism, and, and I think because of online uh, humiliation and efforts to try to gain, you know, approval online, everything is, everything looks good all the time. And, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm a part of the system. It's not like when I, when I post things on Instagram, it's not like I'm posting like everyday pictures of myself, you know, it's, you know, it's thought out, you know, there are filters involved. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, not filters like the face filters, but the, um, you know, like the tint filters anyway. So I'm not, not a part of it, but, um, but you ask famous patron Lennon, you know, what's, what, what, how does humiliation play a unique role in our, you know, contemporary society? And, and I, I just see it getting worse. I, it seems like in 50 years or 30 years, we'll all be more isolated. There will be more humiliation worries. There will be more uh, materialism uh, for ourselves and our children. You know, just a lot more running away from the humiliation that occurs online. That's really quite unique to being online. Uh, having said that, online humiliation has helped, right? When you have a police officer who's being a dick, you know, I I don't know if I've talked about this ever on the podcast before, but I, I might have. But, I, you know, I've had a number of run-ins with police officers and for, you know, whether I'm the target or I'm just, an, you know, a bystander. And there are times when police officers are great. You know, I have really good friends of mine who are police officers, actually, and they're, you know, they're good people. But I've had some run-ins with police officers where um, they were just complete dicks about nothing. You know, like the last time I think I got a speeding ticket, I'm driving up the coast of Washington State and... And I remember, you know, it was a sort of a lazy Sunday driving up the coast. And I remember thinking, um, you know, make sure you follow the speed limit because you're not in a rush. And the older I get, the more I'm just like, yeah, just follow the speed limit. You know, who cares? And I remember thinking, I bet you the speed limit, you know, and I remember trying to find a speed limit sign to really kind of make sure. But I was like, I bet you the speed limit here is 35. You know, it's probably just a good guess. So I'm, you know, driving 35. Cop pulls me over. Cop comes up to the window, and I'm not stressed out. I'm just like, oh, I must have been speeding or something. 
And, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, uh, so what happened? He said, oh, you're speeding it. And I was like, oh, really? Huh. You know, I I kept looking for a, you know, a speed limit sign because, I, you know, I wasn't trying to, to break the speed limit. But I wasn't saying, you know, get me out of this ticket. I, I was just like, oh, bummer. Like, I, I actually, I just wanted to, I was just speaking out loud. I, I wasn't really saying, I was just like thinking, I was like, oh, man, I... I was trying to actually follow the speed limit. Bummer. Oh, I guess I got a ticket. And he just starts yelling at me. And I'm like, we're both grown men. Like, you don't need to speak to me like I'm 16. <laughs> like, I, I understand I made a mistake. Give me a ticket and go home. Like, why are you yelling and, and chastising me? You know, there was a sign right back there. Da, da, da. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating. But but anyway, my point is, is that... Uh, big surprise when you have a job that doesn't have a lot of oversight um, and you give them, you give these people like complete control, some of them are going to be dicks and some of them are going to go way beyond their legal and ethical behavior uh, abilities and have been doing so for decades, uh, particularly towards people of color. And, Without any kind of wretch- without any kind of um, justice, well, now you have cameras, so we can film when police officers are being dicks, and we can and we know they're not going to get fired because you know they almost never get fired. So what we can do is we can post these videos online and be like, "Look at this cop is being a dick," <laughs> and at the very least, other police officers will see that and go like, "Oh, I don't want that to happen to me." You know, it's all about checks and balances. I'm guessing the vast majority of police officers would never be a dick and would be nice. But the ones that are dicks, if you have no way, you know, when you go to Taco Bell and the cashier is a dick to you and you call the manager and the manager's like, yeah, the cashier's being a dick, you know, there's a there's recourse, there's a, there's justice, at least there's an avenue. But with police officers, police officers are dick to you and they have a gun at their side or maybe even a gun that's, you know, uh, drawn. What do you do? And, you know, I've, and I know I've told this story before. It all goes, you know, again, there's so many, there's so many stories I can tell about police officers, good and bad. One of the bad ones was early in my career, I'm treating this family and I'm helping the teenage boy mainly, but I'm helping the whole family. And it comes out, uh, not through me, that the younger boy had been sexually abused by someone and they didn't know who the perpetrator was. And so CPS gets involved and the police get involved. And this police officer, a detective, you know, not just a beat, you know, cop, but, a, you know, a detective who does this kind of stuff, Seattle PD, arrives on the scene, I'm not there, and interviews the younger boy. He's probably like 10 years old. And... The police officer finds out that I'm involved as a family therapist and that I'm working with the older boy and, and everyone in the family. And the police officer starts interviewing the the victim and is like, uh, who did it? And you know, and the kid's like, um, I don't know, or I don't want to say. I don't want to say who abused me, you know, that kind of thing. And the detective uh in all of his various wisdom and, you know, actions as a detective trying to solve this crime of trying to figure out who the perpetrator was. He says, um, he goes to, uh, my 
client, the the teenage boy, and says, um, says to him. So again, the the younger boy was the victim, and the detective is trying to figure out who the perpetrator was. Can't figure it out. Goes to my my main client, the the teenage boy, uh, isolates him and says, uh, "I know that you're the perpetrator." I know you sexually abused your younger brother, even though it, I don't think you did. I, I can't know if the older brother did, but there, there wasn't any evidence. But anyway, the, the detective just, for whatever reason, is just like, it's got to be the older brother. So the detective starts grilling the teenage boy. The teenage boy's like, it wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about, you know. And just imagine, you know, just being grilled. And then the detective says, I talked to your therapist, you know, Kirk Honda, and he told me that you told him that you did sexually abuse your younger brother. Um, and I'm not just making this up. I, I later talked with a detective. He confirmed all this. Okay, so let's just analyze this. The detective told my client that I broke confidentiality by talking to the police officer, one, and two, lied by saying that my client had sexually abused the younger boy. We are taught to believe police officers, right? You know, police officers aren't politicians. Police officers, you know, we're supposed to believe them. And when they say things, particularly when they have a gun on their side, you know, it's it's scary. So, yeah. so this detective tells my client, Kirk Honda, your therapist, who you're you're barely getting to know, you know, you're 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 opening up to very slightly with. Your therapist told me that you told him that you sexually abused your younger brother. And I didn't know about any of this. I show up at the house as when I'm doing in-home therapy. And the boy, um, the you know teenage boy that I've been working really hard to open up to me, um, suddenly isn't talking to me anymore. And he's angry at me. And I'm like, what's going on? And skipping forward in the, in the story, the kid never talked to me again. The teenage boy never talked to me again. I'm like, what's going on? And the mom, you know, comes to me. She's like, well, you know, did you do this? And I'm like, no. And so I call the police. I'm livid. I call the, the detective and I'm like, uh, what did you do? And he's like, well, you know, I'm, it's all a part of the interrogation. And I'm like, well, where did he? I never even talked to you about this family. Yeah, I know. And I never obviously told you that he sexually abused his younger brother. Yeah, I know. And by the way, detective, if you would have asked me, I might have said, no, he never told me he sexually abused his younger brother. And I don't even think he did it. If I had permission from the from the boy, from the teenage boy, he's like, "Yeah, I know." And the detective said, um, "Look, it's an it's an interrogation, it's an investigation. I can say whatever I want to say." And what I told him, and this is back when I believed in human beings, <laughs> or I shouldn't put it that way. This is back when I believed that these kinds of police officers have a heart and a and a brain. I said to him, "So I just want to inform you that due to your." investigation of lying to this family, I no longer have access to that boy. I can't help him because he hates me now for obvious reasons. And I was, as a family therapist, working on some pretty important issues with this family. And because of your, you know, lying and interrogation practices, a bunch of bad things are going to happen to this family. And even if you bring in a therapist, that teenage boy is never going to talk to another therapist again because he was completely betrayed by me, according to you. 
So I, you know, I just want you to know for future reference, you know, don't do that anymore, particularly when you're working with me. Well, he blows me off. So I call his, his uh, superior and I call and I, and I tell him this and I'm thinking, okay, well, obviously the superior is going to understand. I call the superior. I explained to him and he was nice enough, but he's just like, look, you know, when detectives are investigating, they're going to say things. And that's just the way that it is. And I was like, yeah, but you see the bigger picture here. Like if, if you're there to enhance lives, <laughs> you know, in your random effort to try to get the truth, you destroy a therapeutic relationship between a therapist and a family that, that, that was working on some pretty important issues with this family, you know, life or death issues to some extent. You understand that's not a good trade-off, right? And just because apparently you have the legal right to do that to your clients, it doesn't mean that you should do it, right? And the the superior, the captain, he's just like, um, yeah, you know, I understand what you're saying, but when we have a job to do, we're going to do it. And I just thought, oh. And this was not the first time I had run into these police officers. It, it was... There was a number of occasions where they were just completely disappointing. But anyway, so all that's to say <laughs> that, um, you know, right now, I guess we could just be a little uh, particular to what's happening right now. I am publicly shaming that police officer. And by extension, I'm kind of publicly shaming police officers that do this kind of thing, right? Because I have a platform and, and you're listening right now. And so all of us, uh, if you're on board with me, are thinking negative things about uh, you know certain police officers that will engage in this kind of behavior. In the past, before podcasting, before online things, the voice of the people could not be heard unless you shouted it from the corner, you know, in a, on a street. And although that was effective in some movements, it was much less effective in terms of getting your voice out there and getting particular stories out there, right? Because it's not like a journalist is necessarily going to listen to me. Um, so famous patron Lennon, when you talk about humiliation and what's different now, I think there are obviously some good and bad things about our current situation. All right. So I'm going to take another break. But after the break, it's just going to be for patrons. So if you are not a patron of the podcast and you want to listen, because I, I wanted to get to so many more emails. If you're not a patron and you want to listen to I think I'm going to go on for another couple of hours, honestly, because I just feel like it today. <laughs> so uh, you have to go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get uh, you'll listen to this the rest of this episode and all of our other deep dives. But if you already are a patron, then you're probably just going to hear the rest of it. And know that when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to the majority of commercials, which can get annoying, right? All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so, so much for becoming a patron. Anonymous upper-tier patron wrote in, and she said, Thank you for your definition of the word gaslighting. I just want to thank you for acknowledging how invalidating it can feel for victims of gaslighting to hear the word tossed around very easily online. I believe that words should change, but I put gaslighting in a similar category to when people say, oh my God, that's so OCD, or the weather is so bipolar. Changing the meaning of these words actively harms people. Getting to my story, growing up, my family was verbally abusive and occasionally it would get physical. 
my family would either deny these things happened or would say that I was causing all the problems. They were gaslighting me. Lately, I have noticed that my sister will sort of blame me for what happened back then. My sister will say she resented me for growing up and causing so much drama in the family. Is this sort of gaslighting too? If so, what might be the reasons for doing that? End of email. Well, anonymous upper tier patron, I can't know from this email, obviously, because I would have to assess the whole situation. But absolutely, this can happen where non-abusive family members can adopt the abusive narrative of the abuser to survive, right? And it can also be a family role issue. You know, I was talking about systems theory before that it's possible that you were, it sounds like, identified as the scapegoat in the family. And everyone kind of depends on upholding that narrative, not only for their own self-esteem, but also to retain the relationships that they have. You know, one thing I didn't say earlier with the systems discussion is, you know, when we look at families and we see irrational ongoing things happening and we're just like, why would you do that? It's it's so suboptimal. It's so irrational to do those kinds of things. Like to continue scapegoating a victim like yourself of, uh, you know, of abuse, uh, scapegoating you and saying it's all your fault when it, you know, Sounds like it's like ridiculous that anyone would believe that. You know, why would you do that? Well, as I was saying earlier, the more strife a family is going through, the more anxiety it has. And the anxiety is related, and this is my way of putting it, because I, I don't tend to hear people uh, frame it this way, is that the, the system is organized around a lot of needs, but a major need that is organized around is the need for connection, love, and attunement, and safety, and so, and love. So when systems organize around a particular homeostasis, it, the message is given to everyone that if we change, it could become worse. So yeah, there are things bad about our system, but if we change, then we might fly apart and we might not have any love. So, you know, we're getting 10% of the love that we deserve, but if we change, it might go down to 0%. And so people will ascribe to incredibly irrational, destructive system, systemic mechanisms and norms and rules and roles because they're trying to hold on to that 10% essentially. And so I don't know if that's what your sister is doing, but, um, you know, it's possible. And also, like I was saying earlier, she, your sister likely was abused too, or at least witnessed abuse, which is abusive because as a child, you're terrified. And one of the ways that you can cope with that is to identify with the abuser and just to adopt everything that's in their mind without question. And if you allow questions in there, then you might start, one, recognizing that your situation is really dire, which can be very distressing. Or you might actually start saying things that contradict the abuser, which can cause a lot of bad things for you. You know, I don't know, but it's possible that your sister a long time ago made a deal with the devil by saying, well, I have, I have two choices. I have two options. I can either... Be, I can either be rational and bond with my sister against the evil monster, which will probably result in a lot of abuse for me, or I can bond with the abuser and just adopt everything that they believe so that I won't become abused myself. You know, kids will do that. So I, you know, I don't know if that's what's happening to you. So if you were gas being gaslit throughout your childhood, uh, 
it's possible that your sister either believed the gaslighting or had to out of survival. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Annual Patron, Z, from Singapore. They write, Dr. Honda, would you consider talking about the savior complex? I'm starting to realize that I'm attracted to partners who suffer from mental illness, and when that relationship ends, for whatever reason, I feel lost and continue to want to help them even when they don't want it. I wonder if it's because I have a savior complex, but would like to hear what you know and have to say because I trust your judgment. End of email. Yeah, well, I just published a deep dive on codependency and Z from Singapore. I'd love to hear your opinion about that. Maybe, you know, write in a follow-up to that. Maybe you've already written it, but it, it sounds like that might be relevant to you. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron wrote in and said, What is the best treatment for dealing with night terrors? Ever since the pandemic started, I have dealt with an increase in night terrors. Before that, I only had about five or six, but lately I've been having once a week. I have been checked out physically, and I am okay. I punch walls and furniture. I have even scratched and punched my husband in his sleep. I usually finally wake myself up when I start screaming so loud that it startles me awake. I find these episodes disturbing and fear I will hurt my, my husband or myself during an episode. I can never remember any details about the dream or if I even had a dream. After recently being night terror free for a few months, they started back up and I went back to therapy last week. How do I deal with these episodes of night terrors? End of email. Well, first off, I'm not quite sure if you're describing night terrors. For whatever reason, people will refer to a lot of, they'll, they'll, in the lay public, will refer to a lot of things as night terrors. That, you know, night terrors, it, it's kind of specific, but what, at the very least, what you're describing is a somnambulism, and I can't remember the exact term. It's not really my area, um, but I actually suffer from it. Um, I haven't done it in a while, but throughout my life, I will wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be punching the wall. It's essentially a version of of uh, sleepwalking, right? Like one time, I uh, w- I was walk, I was dreaming, I was walking in the mall, and these people came at me and cut off my ability to walk down the hallway and they were getting physical. And so I was going to punch one of the guys in the face and what I was laying on my stomach and I did a one handed push up and punched my own hand. So just imagine that I'm on my stomach sleeping. I sleepwalk, you know, one handed push up and punch my own hand as hard as possible. My I punched, you know, I punched my left hand. My left hand was in pain for two years. <laughs> I, pu- I punched my own hand in my in my sleep, and you know, I've kicked people in bed. You know, my wife, that that kind of thing, and it's not fun. But uh, it's it's not. So there are a few different. There's a number of treatments. the The first thing is sleep hygiene. Is trying to really make sure that your sleep is consistent and sound and good and without any disruption. Sometimes medications can interfere with sleep, but um, the the first thing that people will do with the, with these kinds of things is we really got to make sure this person is getting a good night's sleep because these things are correlated with bad sleep. So if you're getting bad sleep, you know, night after night, the chance of having one of these 
uh, events, one of these episodes um, increases for everyone, particularly people who are prone to them. Um, and there are a lot of different things that can affect sleep. There, you know, you could be asleep, you could be passed out, but not really getting good sleep. So you might want to look at sleep from a lot of different angles. You know, are you getting a good eight hours where you're really getting rested and you don't have any substances that are interfering like alcohol or marijuana or something? Um, marijuana can help people sleep, but it can also interfere. Anyway, um, stress obviously can affect sleep, which can affect night terrors and these kinds of sleepwalking events. Um, the other treatment is to uh, sleep in a sleeping bag and put mittens on your hands so that you don't, you know, for, for some people, th they just do this often and they just sort of wrap themselves up as they sleep so that when they start flailing around, they don't, they don't hurt anyone. Um, so, uh, you know, that's why I wonder if what you're experiencing is truly night terrors, because if, if, if it's just like moving while you're sleeping, it might not be the end of the world. You know, it, it's it, some people have this and, and they just have ways of making sure they don't hurt anyone or themselves. And, you know, it's, it's not a happy day, but it's, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't, it doesn't ruin their lives. Um, obviously other kinds of psychological things could be looked at, you know, trauma recovery, you know, possibly it's, it's hard to know. You did say that when you go back to therapy, it's, you know, they started back up. It could be related to trauma there, but it also could just be coincidental to the therapy. It also could be that stress is interfering with your sleep, which is increasing these events. I, I don't know. But uh, you might have a hard time finding a, a specialist that um, you know works in this area. I would obviously ask your therapist to maybe look up a few things. But again, the first thing I would attack is making sure that you're getting consistent, good amounts of sleep. The, the other thing that, uh, that I've heard about people using is serotonin medications, right? Like SSRIs, uh, Prozac, this kind of thing. Because that can, because uh, serotonin has a lot to do with sleep. Sleep has a lot to do with serotonin. And if you take a medication for serotonin, it kind of level you out so that you don't have these things anymore. But again, I, I would consult with your physician and your therapist about that. All right, upper tier patron Kim from Arizona wrote in. She says, how would you explain the psychology behind extreme rock climbers? I have recently taken an interest in watching rock climbing documentaries. I have zero interest in rock climbing myself, but I find these documentaries riveting, such as Free Solo, uh, the documentary Free Solo. I can't wrap my head around these men who climb the most insane mountains and risk falling to their deaths. I've heard studies that Alex Honnold, one of these climbers, has a hard-to-activate amygdala, so he experiences almost no fear. Is this a thing? End of email. Yeah, so first off, we don't know why humans do anything. So we definitely don't know why humans will climb very dangerous mountains and risk death. So, uh, you know, in 100, 200, 500 years, if we're still around, we'll probably be able to answer that question. But today, it, it's hard for us to know. Um, there has, there haven't been, as as far as I know, any, um, you know, extensive research into these kinds of extreme rock climbers. But there has been, I, I have, I do know of research where they look at people who are into extreme sports, like, um, you know, skydiving, uh, 
you know, sort of dangerous skiing or dangerous mountain biking, this kind of thing. And what they have found is that these people tend to get a rush, almost like an addiction. And there, there seems to be an association with addiction. I uh, know some people that do this sort of thing, and they come from a history of addiction where they, at you know, from 15 to 30, they suffer from a lot of drug addiction, and then they get clean and sober, thank God, because they get treatment. And then after they get sober, they still crave jolts of adrenaline and mind-altering experiences, and they don't like being sober-minded all the time. And you could kind of consider climbing a mountain like this because, uh, you know, uh, there's a there's some fear, obviously. They're not inhuman. They, they have some, there's some adrenaline rush, right? It, it's sort of like, why would you like to, um, I don't know, like get up on stage and be a stand-up comic? You know, it, there, there must be a, you'll hear people, you know, there's a rush involved. There's a, an excitement and it really gets the blood going. You know, we, we clearly have, uh, for some of us, a need to get our blood going and uh, doing extreme sports, you know, free rock climbing, this sort of thing uh, seems to do that for people. And uh, another thing that, cause I've seen these documentaries too. And I, that I wondered about was it's a, it, it's like, it could be like a meditative uh, experience for some people, sort of the opposite of an extreme adrenaline junkie person that it's sort of like gardening, right? Or going on a long run. There are, uh, we seem to, for some of us thrive when we get some part of our day where we just get a zone out and we get to just, you know, not think about our ego so much. Think of, put our self, uh, you know, on the back burner. And there's a lot of ways of getting there. Meditation, drugs and alcohol, and extreme sports. You know, you can imagine climbing one of these mountains because it takes a long time and you're by yourself, right? And you're in nature and you have a job to do. You got to have very, very, uh, you know, acute concentration for hours. And you could imagine that it would be a very, a calm meditative state, right? And maybe, you know, that's why they're attracted to it. Um, the other theories that I'll put out there is that, you know, it's a lot of men that do these things. And so what, it, you know, certainly women like to have adrenaline, certainly women like to have meditative states. So why is it that a lot of men are doing that? Well, there are sociological theories about in evolutionary psychology theories about humans that, our species is such that men would prove themselves as worthy mates by uh, risking danger. And we'll see other animals will do this. There are, you know, I can't remember the exact species. I think there are some birds that do this sort of thing where the male birds will show off by, you know, landing on the ground next to a predator. And as the predator runs up to eat them, the male bird will fly off. And what they're hoping is that a female bird will see that and go like, whoa, that guy's badass. I want to have sex with him. And the theory goes is that for sexual selection, women, you know, females are looking in for some species. It's, it's unclear if this is 
true for humans because we just can't really know. But, you know, it's possible that, uh, or at least we have a, a little bit of this, right? That, you know, women, uh, humans are uh, uh, programmed, so to speak, evolved to be turned on and be attracted to men who do things that are dangerous. Um, this kind of, you could explain a lot of things within this theory. Again, it's hard to know if this is true and it certainly upholds the patriarchy, right? Because um, it would, you know, excuse a lot of really horrible men behavior. So we have to be tentative about this um, idea and, and justifying men behavior by making the just so story that it's biological. But, but it seems, you know, it seems possible that men, uh, humans evolved, to uh, have men who both have an instinct to show off in this way to gain more sexual, uh, you know, attraction and that women would be attracted to that because what it shows, the theory goes is that it shows that if you are capable of, you know, it's like bullfighting, right? If you're capable of getting into the ring with an animal that can kill you, and you're capable of surviving that, then that means you have a lot of skills and a lot, your, your genetics and your abilities are such that I would like to pass those on. Because if you can play with the predator, if you can play with danger, then maybe you have the genes such that you can pass them on to my children so that my children will be protected for, they'll, you know, they'll, my children will be above danger in the way that you're above danger, you know? So, so that's another possibility is that you have a lot of dudes just, uh, you know, highly in sync with this need, uh, even though it, it is has been long sort of separated from actual sexual selection, if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so that's another idea. Another idea is that they're narcissistic and that because when they do this, they often get a lot of attention, right? And it might be this thing that they are, they're always chasing, right? They're always like, Ooh, I got, I got some attention for climbing this mountain, you know? Well, how do I get to be the best? Well, I gotta, I gotta do a harder mountain. Well, now I gotta do without ropes. And, you know, now I gotta do an even harder mountain without ropes in order to get attention from other people. You know, that's a possibility. It's hard, you know, it's hard to know. Uh, certainly the documentary I saw, uh, free solo, for example, which was just, I mean, for those who haven't seen free solo or some of these other documentaries, uh, it might sound boring. You know, you're just what a documentary about a dude who climbs a mountain free solo, the things that this guy does. And it is, it is incredible and terrifying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my hands are sweating just thinking about this movie. It was you know, I've seen a lot of things in my 50 years. I've seen a lot of people do some amazing things. This guy, when he is climbing mountains with no ropes and no, you know, no help, and he is, oh my goodness. I mean, it is, it is just incredible. And, and to kind of absorb his personality a little bit, you know, he certainly doesn't seem narcissistic, but, you know, narcissistic people, people who need a constant stream of narcissistic supply, 
they don't necessarily look narcissistic. You know, that's kind of a misnomer that narcissistic people come across as constantly arrogant. You know, some narcissistic people know how to not come across as narcissistic, you know, because they're always trying to manage their image with other people. So, you know, it's another possibility. I, I don't know, though. I, I Those are the theories. You know, maybe there are others. A particular patron, Mora, from Pennsylvania, wrote in and said, where is the boundary between relying on your partner for emotional support and being overly dependent? I ask this because I'm in a relationship where I am the more sensitive and emotional person. I'm just wondering if my partner is justified in saying that I am too emotional, worried, and dependent. End of email. Well, Maura, it sounds like you're in a relationship where you're having some conflicts and your partner is saying you're you're too emotional, too worried, and too dependent on him. And what you're asking me is, you know, what's the line between relying on my partner and being overly dependent? It's, you know, it's hard to know uh, where that line is, obviously, and it's hard for me to know where you are on that line. There's a possibility that you're overly dependent, um, but the fact that your partner is saying you're too emotional, um, that is... Um, concerning to me they, you know that lends itself to the idea that there, there's just something about the way the two of you are conflicting that's triggering each of you you know he's doing things that are triggering you to be uh, dependent and emotional and, and worried and you're doing things that are triggering him to be I don't know like rejecting or abandoning or something and uh, each of you is developing a narrative and Maybe because of your relational traumas, you're starting to second guess yourself, whereas he is not. Um, obviously, couples therapy is the answer. All right, this next email is from Anonymous, a tier patron from British Columbia. They say, Thank you, Dr. Kirk, for a fantastic mini series on love bombing. My mom has love bombing tendencies. She will be over the top friendly, welcoming, gift giving, food making, smiley, and nice when I haven't seen her in a while. I have dubbed it the honeymoon phase. It will generally wear off in a day or two. Then she can be a bit callous, criticizing, and tone deaf. She habitually is critical of anyone who engages in attention-seeking behavior, or appears to be, even if they are not. When I was a teenager, she would ignore my quote-unquote cries for attention, and I felt rather frozen out by her. She dresses very fashionably, is done up, is always done up, and it could be said she is hungry for attention herself. Are people who love bomb repulsed by others' cries for attention? End of email. Okay, well, so, you know, love bombing typically is done out of desperation for security and or it's a result of someone finally meeting someone or reconnecting with someone that they feel secure with, and they're just like, oh, my God, you know, uh, you are an oasis in a vast desert of loneliness. And so I just love you. I 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 want to be with you all the time. Thank you so much for being with me. And so it's either out of that, you know, longing of, Oh, I finally met someone or out of desperation for security. And these things, this desperation and this, you know, ongoing desert for people usually emerges from relational traumas from their childhood that, uh, result in a lot of bad things, right? That the love bombing is just a, a component of that. So what you're asking is, 
are people who love bomb repulsed by others cries for attention. And uh, I mean, not generally speaking, but certainly uh, whatever resulted in the love bombing could also result in someone being repulsed by others cries for attention. Like uh, say your mom grew up in a situation where she was chronically rejected. And so when, you know, she feels very alone and very um, insecure a lot of times. And so when she finally sees you, she, um, you know, really latches onto you. Now, you're also kind of hinting at this sort of vain aspect of your mom. You're saying that, you know, she she craves attention. Um, so there's also, there's also a possibility that she is on the histrionic spectrum. Listen to my whole deep dive on that and let me know if that makes any sense. You know, when you are not given enough attention or you're only given attention uh, for being very expressive and attention-seeking, you're only given love and attunement when you're attention-seeking, you know, very grandiose gestures to, to gain attention. It's the only time you manage to get anyone to pay attention to you. Then you can, that can lock in a certain uh, neuronal reality for you that makes it so that you have a very frequent knee jerk reaction to become attention seeking and, and histrionic. And you are deeply worried that you're never going to get any attention. And when you're not getting attention, you're terrified that you're going to be left in the woods metaphorically. And, and so you're, you're always, you know, s- scraping for more and more attention. Anyway, so um, could what led to the histrionic, could that result in love bombing? Yeah, it also could result in love bombing in that you, you know, if you're histrionic, you feel like you need to do everything big. You need to do emotions big. You need to do happiness big. You need to be sadness big. You need to do laughter big. Everything has to be big. And so when someone who has histrionic personality uh, reconnects with their daughter, they might be extremely over the top because of their histrionic need to uh, garner lots and lots of attention. You know, Um, there's also a possibility of, you know, some narcissism in there. And maybe when you get other people's, you know, her, you're saying that she doesn't like it when other people get attention. And so, uh, maybe and, and calls other people attention seeking people. Um, you know, there could be some narcissism in there, but uh, I would listen to the whole deep dive on histrionic if you haven't already. And because uh, there's there seems to be some some evidence in there f- for histrionic, you know, when like I said, you know, I explained how histrionic develops in a brief way, and also whenever when you have histrionic personality disorder, whenever anyone else gets attention, it threatens you because it means that you're not getting attention and you have a schema. That means if you're not getting everyone's attention all the time, then you are in dire, dire danger. All right. This next email is from Upperture patron, Sophie from Denver. She writes, I am 30 and I still do not have a sense of self, including what I should do for a career. Where do I start to create a sense of self in adulthood? Where do I begin? I am what Dr. Honda would call a leaf in the wind. I have been in therapy for three years. Is there a specific type of therapy I should be seeking? End of email. Well, Sophie, I am so happy for you because developing a sense of self begins with recognizing that you do not have 
a connection with the self, you know, that uh, that's the first step. And that's a big step. And, and you're, you know, you're 50% there, honestly, just from that alone. You've been in therapy for three years. So what I would do is I would ask your therapist to help you with this, that, that it's very simple, really. It takes a long time, but it's very simple. It involves two questions that need to be uh, thought about and asked of you frequently, which are, what am I feeling right now? And what do I need? And I guess the third question, what do I want right now? Right at this very minute, what do I want? Now, if you don't have a connection with the self, you'll have a hard time answering that question at first. And don't be afraid. Remember that you're looking in your bedroom and you don't see anything it can feel like a void and it can feel like an emptiness. It can feel very scary, but it's not empty. It's not a void. It's just the lights are off. And so you're, you're turning up the dimmer switch. So you just keep asking that question. What do I want? What do I need? How do I feel? What do I want right now? What do I want right now? What do I want to do right now? Now, the first thousand time you ask that question, you won't have an answer. What do I want to do? I don't know what I want to do. I only know what I want now. Often, and, and also take note of how you answer the question. Because some people, many people, without a sense of self, without a connection with the self, will answer the question in terms of what other people want them to do. You know, um, I will ask them, what do you want to do? And they'll say, well, I want to go pick up the kids from, from school, and then I want to take them to the ice cream place. And, the, and I'll be like, is that what you want to do? And they'll be like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the kids, they need to be picked up from school and, and, and they like ice cream, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or what do you, what do you want to do with a career? And they'll be like, well, um, you know, I wouldn't mind becoming a lawyer. You know, my, and my mom suggested I become a lawyer, that kind of thing. I'd be like, well, do you want to become a lawyer? And they'll say like, well, I don't mind being a lawyer. And so you just take note of how you answer the questions in your own mind and to other people, because you might think you're answering the question, but you're not really answering the question. And it's okay to not have an answer. Again, that's the whole point of lacking a connection with the self. You will not have an answer to that question. Also, how do I feel? What what are my emotions right now? How do I feel? This one is easier for people, in my experience, to answer earlier on. How do I feel? What's my emotion? Do I feel happy? Do you know? And a lot of times, people without a connection to the self, whenever you ask them how they feel, they feel crappy. They don't feel good, and that's okay. But that—that's where it begins. You have to. That's being in the connection with who you are. Maybe who you are is suffering and aimless, and that's okay. But you know, that's step one. You got to get in connection with yourself. You keep rinsing and repeating that over and over and over again. Who am I? What do I want? How do I feel? What do I need? What are my needs right now? What What is my body telling me right now? You keep asking that over and over and over again, and then eventually, you you know, years into the process, you don't need to ask that question explicitly anymore. You just kind of know. You you get a feeling. I am in connection with myself. And so I don't need to ask my question. I don't need to ask how I feel. Sometimes I benefit from it because I'll get a little cut off. But generally speaking, I know what I want and I know how to fe- how I feel because my parents raised me well enough so that I'm in direct connection with it. So it j- I, just, I just feel like, ooh, I want to do this. Like earlier today, I was, I just had this feeling like I want nachos. 
<laughs> and so I got nachos and ate them and, and liked them. Um, yeah, so to do that. And ask your therapist to help you with it. Upper tier patron, fellow Hapa Trish, wrote in and says, do family members, by the way, it's just so great to meet other Hapas or Hapas, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, so Trish says, do family members need to be involved when becoming more secure? As I listened to your three chapters on dependent personality disorder, I realized more and more that I have dependent qualities. In fact, the reason I even started to go to therapy three years ago was that I felt I was completely incapable of finishing my PhD, yet have not been kicked out yet. So I thought that if I went to therapy, the therapist realized I don't belong in graduate school and advised me to leave. I know I developed dependent, trait, dependent traits because I grew up with a very harsh and overbearing sister who suffers from bipolar and a very self-centered and controlling father who suffers from the worst ADHD I've ever seen. Because of all the ways they controlled and harmed me growing up, I have a lot of anger towards them, but I never show it as they can topple my anger in a heartbeat. Even now, as I am finishing my PhD, I find that when I do talk to them, which I avoid, they continue to try to bulldoze me, tell me what to do, and just completely disregard my ideas or needs. I am working very hard to become more secure and grow, but I feel completely regressed whenever I interact with them. In order to become more secure, do I need to try to involve them in this goal of mine? I am afraid that they will just turn the whole thing down and claim that they do not and have never done anything wrong. Your podcast has been so essential in my growth and my progress in my PhD. Thank you. Thank you and your wonderful team, fur babies included, so much. <laughs> End of email. Speaking of fur babies, you can probably hear my dogs barking outside my window. Um, who knows what they're barking at? They, who knows what they're <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nighttime right now, nine o'clock. So I'm a little worried about the neighbors getting angry at us. But anyway, um, so congratulations, Trish, on fin almost finishing your PhD. Good for you. Also, good for you to for being so self aware. You know, it's I hear a lot of self awareness in your ability to recognize your dependent qualities and where it came from. And it sounds like you have some pretty quintessential. Uh, you know, background elements, controlling, harmful, that kind of thing, uh, you know, people in your in your family. Also, congratulations on going to therapy for three years. That's great. But your question is interesting. You're saying, in order to become more secure, do I need to try to involve my family in this goal? And the answer is no, absolutely not. <laughs> you could if you want to, but no, you do not have to involve your family. I don't know, you know, did I did I give that the impression that that's what had to happen? Um, no, absolutely not. Now, it could be powerful if you felt up for it to, you know, build up enough self-esteem and, and security outside of the family and then return to them and maybe confront them or, you know, a compassionate confrontation of them um, that could be powerful and that could be very therapeutic, but it certainly is not necessary. Uh, you know, for the dependent personality, the corrective experience is one of you are, you know, uh, in a relationship that treats you as if you are competent because you are, I mean, look at you, you're getting your PhD uh, treats you as if you can be angry that, that you are, you know, valid in your anger and that you're safe to be angry, 
That's a big part of dependency recovery. A big part of dependency recovery is being in a relationship, you know, getting in connection with yourself, you know, all those kinds of things. So, and, you know, you listen to the whole deep dive, so you know that. But, uh, you know, that could or could not involve your family of origin. So, you know, if, if that's not, if, if that doesn't feel good, then, you know, by, by, just don't do it. <laughs> all right. Anonymous upper tier patron wrote in and she says, when is it appropriate to work on relationship issues with a partner with a history of intimate violence versus needing to leave that partner? When my partner gets frustrated with me, he will call me stupid or speak to me in a contemptuous tone. He nearly always gets his way in any conflict. A few years ago, he shared with me that he took a hit out on his first wife for cheating on him, but he insists it was only to injure her and scare her, not to kill her. He still speaks as if she deserved it and says he actually came close to killing her himself. Despite all of this, and as horrific as I find it, I don't think he's a psychopath. I think he suffers from serious attachment traumas like you have talked about in the podcast. He says he understands why I say I can be scared of him. He wants to work on our relationship and doesn't want me to be afraid of him. We have been together quite a while. But the way he still talks about the incident with his first wife, that she deserved it, it really upsets me. And I wonder what would happen if I did want to leave him. Have you ever... Have you seen couples with these issues work out a healthier way of, of relating to each other? End of email. Oh boy, there's a lot to get into. Um, so yeah, it sounds like a like an abusive relationship that you're in. Um, so I'm just going to put that out there, and you don't deserve that. And if you need help, you know, call the DV hotline on just you know Google DV hotline and. Get an advocate, get a therapist, get help, um, get friends. You're being treated badly, unfairly, and it's scary. You know, plenty of women are killed by their uh, abusive husbands every day around the world. And so um, I'm worried about you and um, do what you need to do to get safe, to feel safe. And, you know, if you do decide to leave him, um, make sure you do all the things you need to do because he, you're, what you're telling me is he's looking into the past and sharing with you, and God knows what's really going on because this is what he's told you, that he hired someone to murder his wife because she cheated on him. He insists, according to you, that he only wanted to injure her and scare her not to kill her. That is, now you're saying he's not a psychopath, fine. I, who cares what label we put to it? That is not okay. And he holds to it to this day. He's like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. There's something wrong with him. And you're in a very dangerous place. No joke. <laughs> like, you know, people who talk about this sort of thing, they sometimes act on it. And and then you're also telling me that he wished he had actually killed her. You said, what did you say here? Um, let's see. Uh, he says he actually came close to killing her himself. You know, wow. And yikes and scary. I'm scared for you. It's a big deal. So, um, no matter how much he wants to work on the relationship, 
there's a chance that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, your life and your happiness and your safety is more important than any relationship that you're in. Having said all that, you're asking me a question, you know, have I seen or worked with couples with issues like this and, and have them work it out and have a healthier, safer relationship? Yeah, I have. I've worked with individuals and couples, uh, you know, similar to what you're describing and had things work out, uh, you know, seemingly. So it's not, um, it's not impossible. The other thing that you say is, you know, despite all of this and horrific as you find it, you don't think he's a psychopath. You say, I think he suffers from serious attachment traumas. Serious attachment traumas can result in psychopathy. So, um, you know, some, you know, there's theories that propose that psychopaths are born mostly, or at least partially. And there are theories that say it's mostly environment. In my experience, all the psychopaths that I have treated and met and read about all had horrific early childhood attachment experiences. So psychopathy, meaning lack of empathy and, you know, callousness and wanting to harm other people and not caring can absolutely be created by serious attachment issues. Now you can feel bad for him. you can be like, Oh, you know, he, he's been through a lot, but that doesn't mean that you have to accommodate his abusive behavior. Um, and immoral. It's immoral for him to have done what he did to his past girlfriend and, or his past, you know, relationship. And he, he stands by it. You know, that's wrong. <laughs> like, uh, like it anyway, but be careful because, you know, don't, don't confront him because that could be bad. You know, if you decide to leave him, I would recommend absolutely talking with a domestic violence intimate partner violence specialist to make sure that you're in a safe house or in a safe place. So you have support. So he, um, does he have guns? Like this is a, I'm scared for you and, and, and email me and email into me and, and let me know how you're doing. Cause, um, I, I'm concerned uh, at the very least get a therapist who you can talk with about this. All right. Anonymous upper tier patron. He writes in and says, do single men without kids face stig- stigma in the field of child psychology. Hello, I am in my first year of psychology undergrad and getting close to the deadline where I must choose whether to apply to a graduate program in mental health counseling or couples and family therapy. I would like to specialize in helping teenage runaways and other at-risk youth avoid delinquency, recover from homelessness and addiction, and other struggles based on my own lived experience in both one-on-one and family-based sessions. However, I have noticed that it is forbidden for me as a male without kids to offer suggestions about childcare, especially to moms who believe that because I don't have kids myself, I couldn't possibly know anything about how their minds work and should keep my advice to myself. Will being credentialed as a marriage and family therapist change that to a situation where they take my perspective into account or will I still be fighting an uphill battle where any insight I have is dismissed? So just chiming in here, upper tier patron. Um, yes, it is a thing that, uh, you know, if you are, uh, particularly if you're a man without kids and you're giving advice to people about childcare and about parenting, that it might be held in a suspicious light. Um, 
But I will say that in response to your question that once you have your credential, will people take you more seriously? Yes. Um, in my experience, yes. The other thing is, is you don't have to answer the question as to whether or not you have kids or not. Um, you know, there are many people who have kids or not have kids who just don't talk about that with their clients. They're just like, uh, you know, you're, you'll be trained to do this once you go to graduate school, but cause there's a lot of questions like this, you know, someone will say like, well, do you have kids or have you ever used heroin before? You know, there, there are questions that, or someone will say, um, have you ever had this sort of sexual act before? And the question isn't usually out of curiosity. Sometimes it is, but usually it is a way for the client to see if you can be trusted, to see if you know what you're talking about. And if you go through the program and you gain enough experience, then um, you, you'll, you'll be good at what you're doing. Um, take me, for example. I, was, I became a marriage and family therapist when I was 25, you know, 26, and was extremely immature compared to now and inexperienced compared to now, had really very little outside life knowledge and family knowledge. Um, but uh, trial by fire, treating so many families and so many parents and so many kids and so many teens, I learned with, you know, imagine 30 hours of, you know, because the beginning of my career for the first three or four years, it was all, it was pretty much all teenagers and their parents. And after 30 hours a week, sometimes more than that, actually what, when I graduated, I was working 70 hours a week because I was working really hard to pay off my student loans. And, um, you know, I was scheduling sessions with clients at 11 PM at night in home. I would drive to their house at 11 at night. <laughs> and, so I was getting wall-to-wall experience working with parents and teenagers. And it's hard for me to know how good of a therapist I was back then, but I, I do know that I learned a lot. And by the end of that time, I was an expert on how to help parents parent, even though I was barely out of my teenage years myself. <laughs> you know, I it wasn't that long ago that I was a teenager myself, and here I am, advising in a very authoritative manner parents who are, you know, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s parenting teenagers. And and I'm telling them what to do. And I'm uh, coming across like I know what I'm talking about. Because I did. Because, I, you know, wall to wall, all week long, you know, you learn things. You learn what works. You, you, you learn what's normal. You, you learn what's abnormal. You learn what kids respond to. You, you have a, a wisdom about you. And... People occasionally would ask me, but it was always in the beginning, and it was never later on. But in the beginning, some some people would ask me, you know, do you have kids? And I, and I just I came from kind of a psychodynamic mindset in the beginning, and I was just like, look, I'm going to uphold the frame of therapy. I'm not their friend. I'm their clinician, and I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm not going to talk about my personal life. And so, I would just say. Um, you know, why do you ask? Or are you asking because you're concerned that I won't know what I'm doing? Would you like me to uh, demonstrate to you that I know what I'm doing? Because there are other ways for me to demonstrate, you know, whether or not I have kids or not. You know, when I was 28 um, and, you know, if I had kids at the time, um, would that have made me somehow 
more valid as a marriage and family therapist? No, you know, it has, it really doesn't have a lot to do with it. Being, being a parent helps being around kids help. And, um, for sure, but it's not a prerequisite and it's, it's not, it's not entirely necessary. It's because being a, being a therapist is, is really, it's a different function, right? It's you're helping parents. You're not actually doing the parenting, you know? So, um, anyway, uh, Anyway, but, but parenting does help, and working with kids does help. Being, being around a lot of kids and being a therapist, anonymous upper tier patron, if you're going to work with kids, and you probably already have worked with a lot of kids because it sounds like you're interested in that, um, you're going to know a lot of things. Anyway, point is is that you don't have to answer the question, and you can demonstrate your uh, expertise by just proving. And that was a thing that I always said. It's like. Um, and sometimes I would literally even tell the clients, I would say, you know, give me, give me a month, give me four weeks. And at the end of that time, you think that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm, I, I don't have any use to you as a therapist, then, you know, feel free to fire me. You should fire me because if I'm no help, then, then I, I should leave. But at the end of that four weeks, if I'm, if I'm helpful, if, if I've helped you, then we'll give it another four weeks, you know, that kind of thing. And often just saying that to someone comes across to the client as, oh, this person knows what they're doing. You know, they, they've been around the block a few times. They're, they're not rattled by my accusation or my, by my implication that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and uh, so there are pros and cons to being a dude, anonymous upper tier patron in marriage and family therapy working with kids. Um, and side note, uh, I would recommend going in, into couples and family therapy because you want to work with kids and I find it abhorrent when therapists work individually with kids. It's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, now occasionally that's necessary and, and helpful, but kids are, you know, eternally in, intertwined with their families that they're living with. So you have to, you know, if you have a seven-year-old that has behavior problems, you best be talking to the parents about what they're doing to kind of, mess with the kid to create that problem and or perpetuate the problem and also talking with the parents about how they can support the changes that, that you're implementing with the kid anyway. So if you're going to work with kids, in my humble opinion, um, at the very least, you have to learn how to do family therapy. You know, you don't have to get a marriage or family therapy degree to become you know, you you can become you can go into mental health counseling and take a lot of classes in family therapy and also be a good family therapist. You know, like Bob, for example, he's a mental health counselor and he's an excellent couples therapist. You know, one of the best in Seattle. But he had to spend many years post grad getting a lot of classes and a lot of supervision. So you know, it's possible. But uh, you know, much faster track is to be a marriage and family therapy. And it's just kind of nice to have that in your title, right? Like you're, you're going to work with kids and their families. It's nice to be able to call yourself a licensed family therapist, right? So getting back to what I was saying before, there, there are pros and cons to being a dude as a therapist. A con is what you're mentioning right now, is that people will be questioning us like, because they don't associate men with being able to parent well especially if that's what they've experienced in their personal life, right? So there's that. Um, the pro, though, is that there are a lot of families with boys or even, you know, girls uh, or people of any gender where 
they're looking for a corrective experience with a male or a, a male therapist or a, um, a, uh, uh, you know, a father figure kind of thing. And so I, as a, as one of the few dudes in marriage and family therapy got referred a lot of clients just because families were looking for a male therapist. So, so that, you know, there, there are pros and cons to the prejudice and the, you know, the profession, uh, going on with your email. Also, when you were working with youth, did you ever have parents or colleagues who assumed that your desire to work with kids is based on an ulterior purient interest? And if so, what did you say and how did you keep from getting upset about these suspicions? That stereotype makes me so angry. I fear I would get defensive if people judged my passion in that light. It is a trigger, especially since I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse myself and would sooner cut my own head off than even think about doing the same thing to someone else. Just chiming in here. Yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> and I experienced this. Um, this prejudice that, especially if you're a younger guy, strangely, or maybe if you're any sort of adult guy, I don't know, that if you're interested in working with kids, you know, like you'll have a, a, a male kindergarten teacher. And of course, not everyone has a stereotype, but some people do. They'll be like, oh, he must be a child rapist because he's, cause he's a dude and he's a kindergarten teacher or he's a dude and he's a, you know, a child care. He, he wants to work in child care, like a, like a daycare. He must be a child molester. Yeah, this is, this is awful. I, I mean, what? <laughs> it's like, what year is it right now? I, I mean, yeah, it, I would get it. You know, I would get looks, I would get questions and, you know, anonymous up to your patron. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, there, what are you supposed to do? Cause there's no movement. There's no, like, there's no hashtag men can be caring too, or not all men are rapists. You know, there, there, there's really no movement. So it's you against the stereotype, you know, for, for black people in America, uh, there's a lot of racism and mistreatment and, but at least you you have a movement behind you, a hashtag, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a thing you can call upon, but as a, as a guy who's being, uh, who, who wants to work with kids as a therapist who is getting, you know, stereotyped as a child molester, like, what are you supposed to say? How are you supposed to defend yourself? It's awful. You should get angry and you should be hurt by that. And now you're saying, you know, what do you say? And how do you keep from getting upset about the suspicions? Um, I don't know. I mean, how do you prove a negative? How do you prove that you're not a child molester? How, um, how are you supposed to, you know, there's no like license that says I'm not a child molester. And of course, child molesters will say I'm not a child molester. So <laughs> how are you supposed to react to that? I mean, I suppose you could say, um, you know, I, I've passed the background test, but that sounds suspicious because it's like, well, that's what a child molester would say. <laughs> you know, a lot of child molesters have clean records because they haven't been caught. So I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you what I did, which is I did nothing. I, I just, I just pushed through it. I, you know, I, I would get comments or looks or something and, and I would just, you know, it was very infuriating and alienating and demoralizing but I, I just said, you know what? I'm going to prove to these people that 
I'm just not like that. I, that's all I can do. You know, I, I can't, I can't say anything that's going to change the situation. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep being who I am and hope that they see me for who I am and, and that it that puts that stereotype or at least the accusation to rest. And maybe I help break the stereotype. So, you know, I'm with you on that. And, um, you're, you're going to be in supervision with hopefully a mentor and you can talk with them about that if you ever run into it so that you don't blow your top. But I, I, I don't recommend confronting your clients about it. Um, you also said something earlier that I want to comment on as well that, you know, I've, you said, I've noticed that it is forbidden for me as a male without kids to offer suggestions about childcare, especially to moms who believe that because I don't have kids myself, I'm not, I couldn't possibly know. It sounds like you've had some conflict with some moms. And if I were your supervisor, I would drill down on how that happened because you know, I supervise and certainly am a male therapist and certainly supervise a lot of male family therapists. And, uh, you know, we can run into this sort of thing. It, really, therapists of any gender can be questioned on their abilities, particularly novice clinicians. Um, and there's a way of responding that preserves the relationship. Um, it, we under, and So I'll tell you, anonymous separate patron, as I tell all my supervisees, people come to therapy because they have problems, Right. And so some of these moms might have very good reasons to be suspicious of men and uh, throughout their life. And so as they exhibit their trauma triggers towards you, um, you know, not taking it personally is, is important. Plus it's accurate to not take it personally because it's not personal. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I might work on how you perceive and categorize these kinds of stereotypes and prejudices and, and rejections that you're getting from, from your clients. The other thing I'll say is that if you want to work with at-risk youth and their parents, then the world needs you. Not only do they need therapists like that, but they need, they need dudes. There's a lot of boy teenagers who are looking for male therapists, especially someone like you kind of comes, sounds like you come from that background there's so much good that you can give to the world. And uh, and I'm sure you know that. I'm sure that's why you're doing it. So uh, don't give up because the world needs you. Uh, you know, if everyone who was fighting for goodness and compassion and healing gave up when they ran into a little adversity or even a lot of adversity, there wouldn't be any helpers in the world. And so, you know, get your support. You don't, you're not alone find a mentor and um, persevere. All right. So going on with your email here, if I decide to get my master's in mental health counseling, instead of couple and family therapy, would I only be allowed to see adults or could I take on juveniles as clients for one-on-one -on -one in that role as well? Just chime in here. Um, yeah. Uh, mental health counselors can work with individuals of any age, whether it be, you know, adults, teens, or kids. Uh, like I said earlier, I just wouldn't recommend it. I think it's incredibly limiting. In fact, almost every mental health counselor I know that works with teenagers feels, especially in the beginning of their career, feels like they're at a deficit because they're not trained to work with the family. Um, you know, a couple and family therapists are trained to work with individuals, individual teens, for example, and the family. And imagine transitioning to couple therapy. You know, the, the family drags in the teenager and 
because they're a scapegoat, you start treating the teenager, you're like, hey, let's get the whole family in here. You start treating the family. Then you realize, ooh, actually the parents are the problem in this family. And then imagine, so imagine being able to switch from individual teenager to treating the parents who are the real problem in the family, right? Like that, that's a powerful ability to transition. Imagine if you're a mental health counselor and you, you have no training in family or couple therapy, how, just how incredibly limiting that would be. Um, just uh, uh, finishing your email here, um, you say, I figured that as a fellow male shrink without kids, you would have some insight into these topics. Um, end of email. Um, I have not talked about whether or not I have kids. So are, are people assuming I don't have kids? Because I haven't talked about that. <laughs> so uh, and that's on purpose. Uh, not, not only, mainly because I have clients who listen to my podcast and there are certain things about my life that I, I just don't discuss. Um, and so the fact that I don't discuss it doesn't mean they don't exist. You know what I mean? But in summary, and I'm a anonymous upper tier patron, the world needs you. I'm glad you're considering it. I highly recommend couple and family therapy. I highly recommend working with supervisors who understand your plight. I highly recommend being diplomatic with people who question your credentials and your abilities, and then setting out to prove to them, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, once I got my credential, I found it strange how much people just trusted that I knew what I was doing, even though I didn't feel like I, I knew what I was doing in the beginning. There's just, there's something about, you know, being called a licensed marriage and family therapist, you know, um, you know, you're licensed by the government and it, people really elevated me. <laughs> I remember that feeling just like, whoa, like almost overnight, like as soon as I became, before I was even licensed, but as soon as I became an intern, so I'm 25 years old and I'm an intern and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm in my first month of my internship and clients treated me like I was 20 years into my career and gave me all the trust in the world and thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> so uh, you can kind of rely on that bias or that stereotype that, if you are given the mantle of a clinician, of a therapist, that people will, they'll kind of back off, you know, they'll, they'll assume, you know, what you're doing. And for those that are a little questioning, you know, just respect it and say, okay, you know, I'm here to answer your questions. And I'm also here to say that uh, you give me a chance and we'll see if I'm helpful or not. All right. This next email is from a particular patron, Hannah. She writes, how do I understand my diagnosis of bipolar? I have been seeing my psychologist for about 10 years and my current psychiatrist for two years. My psychologist recently mentioned during one of my sessions that my psychiatrist classifies me as bipolar. However, I have never had a manic episode. I suffer from deep depression. So what does it mean that my psychiatrist believes that I have bipolar? I don't know why I find the label important, but it seems important. My psychiatrist prescribes several treatments that are on par with bipolar disorder. For instance, I take lithium and a mood stabilizer. Is this just a gray area of psychiatry and psychology? And, end of email. Um, okay, so of course I can't know what's going on, Hannah, but to answer your questions, uh, I would ask your psychiatrist why they have diagnosed you with bipolar. It's your psychiatrist, and your psychiatrist should be very 
good at being able to tell you what your diagnosis is and why you have that diagnosis. Now, some people might see bipolar to include a, a wider range of mood disorders or mood presentations that might include either extremely minor versions of mania or even maybe even non-versions of mania. It's hard to know. It's also possible that your psychiatrist has identified it, you as having mania, but you just don't frame it as mania or hypomania. I don't know, but I would ask them. It also kind of sounds like your psychologist, your psychologist doesn't diagnose you with bipolar. So your psychologist probably knows you better than your psychiatrist, honestly. So I would ask your psychologist about all this stuff and just be like, so you've, you've seen me for 10 years. Do I have bipolar? What label would you put to me? And it's totally fine to want to know what label people, you know, your professionals are giving you. Um, you know, a lot of patients will feel like it's questioning the experts, you know, it, who, who am I to question the experts? Look, it's you, it's your body, it's your mind, it's your treatment. You have every right to say, uh, what diagnosis have you applied to me and why? And I, and I want to fully understand this and I deserve to fully understand. It's me. This is me. You know, we're not talking about someone across the street. This is me. You're treating me. I deserve to know what you're doing to me. I deserve to know how you see me. So absolutely demand that. Because it, you know, it's it's normal to want that. Plus, you're being given medications. Uh, you need to know, and maybe you know. Anyway, so there's that. The other thing I'll say is that some psychiatrists live by the rule of if I don't know what it is, I will try medications until I find what works, and then I will know the diagnosis. Meaning that you come in and you have. Uh, reported mood uh, issues, you know, depression, and they start giving you medications and none of them really work until they get to lithium. And then they say, oh, well, lithium, and then you report after six months on lithium that things are going really great. And then they go, oh, well, you must have bipolar because lithium is a treatment for bipolar. Whereas if lithium didn't really help and say an antidepressant worked, then they say, oh, you, you must have major depressive disorder. That sounds like a very weird way of diagnosing. And frankly, it kind of is, but it's a way of treating. And, you know, in the end, it, it ends up working. And I could go into detail as to why I think psychiatrists will do this. I mean, there's pressures from insurance companies and it's also a lot of opinion and guesswork you know you, someone presents to you with a bunch of symptoms and you're just like uh could be this could be that and the idea goes is that if the medication works then you know you must have had the problem right it's sort of like if someone comes into you and they have all sorts of uh, a kid comes into you has all sorts of behaviors anxiety depression you give them ritalin and all their problems go away for a year on Ritalin, you're like, oh, everything must have stemmed from some version of ADHD, right? Like it wasn't depression. It wasn't anxiety. The primary thing was ADHD. And we saw anxiety and depression emerging from that. You know, it, it's unclear if that's even accurate, right? Because uh, maybe it's something else, but, or maybe the medication just coincided with a remission in the depression. Anyway, so um, that's what I'll say about that. Uh, I only have two more upper tier patron emails. Let's see if I can get to all of them. 
All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Kimmy, who is also from British Columbia, as a previous emailer was. Is it possible to have both borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder? And if so, what does that actually look like? I came across your YouTube video. I came across a YouTube video recently about borderline and narcissism comorbidity by Sam Vaknin. His explanation is that in some people with with borderline, they can have comorbid narcissism at a ratio of about 85% borderline and 15% narcissism. And that the borderline personality disorder part of them absolutely hates the narcissistic borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder part. Of course, being as both of these disorders are self-protection mechanisms from early childhood trauma, it sounds like if you have both, that internal suffering might be even magnified. But what would this actually look like in a person from the outside? Is this even actually possible in your opinion? I'm not exactly a fan of Sam Vaknin, and I have a visceral reaction to him every time I watch his videos. But the idea fascinates me, and I was hoping that at some point you could speak of the possibility of comorbid, borderline, and narcissistic personality disorder. End of email. Yeah, so um, two things, or many things to say. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I, don't, I haven't seen this video. I suppose I could watch it, but I don't have the time. <laughs> and it's 1030 at night right now. And um, yeah, but... You know, so I can't really speak to Sam. I don't even know that as Sam Vaknin um, and what they're saying. This 85% um, borderline, 15% narcissism. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, so first off, as you know, because I often talk about it, the construct of labels, particularly personality sort of labels, is it's not a thing. It's a it's not a it's not an actual thing. It's a thing that we it's a label that we use to describe something in people, and it's highly based on opinion. Every clinician has a different concept of what borderline is and what narcissism is because it's such a complex thing. There's so many different things to consider. So the idea that one person, Sam Vaknin, could look at someone and say, you have 85% borderline and 15% narcissism, and this is something I've seen often. I have no idea what they would mean by that. I would have to hear their full description of what they meant. Um, just hearing that um, doesn't mean a lot, right? Um, having said that, it is research. Uh, you know, research has found that people with borderline, it can be comorbid, comorbid with narcissism. And there's a little bit of narcissism in borderline. So that's what I would, that's maybe the main thing I'll say is that when people are borderline, they always have a bit of narcissism, meaning that they have modes or a mode that they can go into as a self-protective mode to protect themselves from the idea that they're inferior and worthless and it, it'll be a little self-centered. It'll be a little self-grandiose, you know, particularly when they're triggered, right? My feelings are my feelings and that is the most important thing in the world and you will listen to me, you know. It, it has a self-centeredness to it and... Um, so, you know, it comes across as, as narcissistic. And also, as I will sometimes say, underneath every narcissistic person is a borderline person. Underneath every person who is using narcissism as a defense against deep, deep shame and inferiority and humiliation is someone that is desperate for closeness and terrified of abandonment. And they're just 
acting like they don't care because that's their coping style. So the fact that some people are categorized as both or the fact that people mistake, you know, 10 clinicians observe someone and five say they're borderline and five say they're narcissism. It doesn't surprise me because like I said, borderline people have some narcissism and narcissistic people have some borderline. That's why they're considered to be in the same cluster, right? Um, cluster B personality disorder. So, um, so there's that. Um, but have I treated people with both borderline and narcissism? Yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, an easier way to think about it is schemas, right? So if you have a schema, uh, you know, you learned that you can be abandoned and that you can't depend on other people, then you might develop a, a lot of the symptoms and you're not attuned to enough growing up. You, you'll, you'll develop many of the symptoms and qualify for the diagnosis of borderline, you know, meaning that you're easily triggered from rejection signs and you have sort of an all good, all bad approach to relationships and, you know, all the kind of, you know, semi-essential signs of being borderline. And let's also say that in addition to abandonment trauma growing up, you also had trauma regarding you being worthless and invisible and um, irrelevant, you know, as from zero to two, you were in and out of foster care or something, or, uh, you know, you were being raised by a single parent who was, you know, uh, depressed and, you are left alone a lot. So not only are you abandoned as a child and learn that you can be abandoned, but you're also learning that you really can't depend on other people. And so you also develop this notion that in a, in a defense against this uh, emotional neglect that you don't need anyone else. And by extension, you're special and godlike. You can do anything. And that notion comforts you when you're two years old and five years old, that you're special, that you're different, that you're above it all. You're better than other people. So both schemas can be present in the same person, right? You can be both abandoned and traumatized by the abandonment and believe that everyone is going to leave you at any moment and the need to develop a grandiose self to defend against the notion that you're worthless and thus both have borderline and narcissism. But if someone came into my office and had that, I don't know if I would diagnose them with borderline and narcissism. I would just I would just mainly focus on the schemas that I found because even for borderline and narcissism there are a variety of schemas that can lead to those disorders and I'm much more concerned with the schemas because those are the things that I have to address and help them learn and create corrective experiences around. I don't have corrective experiences for borderline per se. It, it really, because borderline people will have you know, a different combinations of schemas. You know what I mean? So that is my, what else is it? But what would this look like actually from a person on the outside? Um, yeah, I don't, I think I explained that. Let's go into our last email. All right. The last upper tier patron email. I finally got through the list. Upper tier patron Emma from Norway wrote in and says, Hi, Dr. Kirk. My best friend has borderline personality disorder, and she always reads her therapist notes after sessions. She is hospitalized quite often for suicide attempts, and she always reads her notes there too. It seems to me that this is something impulsive or at least obsessive. 
I'm wondering if this is a healthy thing for her communication with her therapist or if this is damaging her treatment. To me, it seems like a control issue, maybe. What do you think? End of email. Well, I can't know why your friend is doing that in particular, but I will say that um, some people with borderline that I will treat will benefit by reading, maybe not by necessarily reading my notes. I haven't actually read, ran into that, but so let me back up. So someone with borderline, as I was talking about, abandonment trauma, and when they come into therapy with me and with other therapists, they're terrified and paranoid and distorted that I am going to abandon them and that I think bad thoughts about them, that I'm on the edge of firing them as a client at any moment, that I might even be, you know, dangerous in some ways. And they feel that feeling. And if they're recovering enough, and if I'm good enough as a therapist, eventually they learn that those feelings are irrational and that they're not helping them. And so we will work hard, you know, in therapy, me and the client, to do everything we can within the frame of therapy to reassure the client that I am safe and that I won't abandon them. And I could see some clients asking me, this this has never happened before. They've asked me a lot of other things, but not this, to read my notes after every session because if, if you read my notes, it might be an indication like, oh, okay, you know, this is what my therapist is writing about me. This is their own kind of private uh, session note. And I'm sort of like seeing inside the mind of my therapist. And it's reassuring to know that they're not rejecting me. You know, there's nothing in that note that says they want to get rid of me. And so this helps me to sleep at night a little bit more. And it's corrective, right? You know, that repetitive acceptance and safety is what someone with borderline needs. They need constant corrective messages that they're acceptable and that other people can be trusted and that other people aren't going to leave them and that other people really love them and really care about them. And so you could imagine someone reading their notes as an, an, you know, an effort. And so, so you're saying, you know, it seems compulsive or at least obsessive. Yeah. I mean, uh, not in the OCD sense, but you know, people with borderline can be absolutely obsessive about these kinds of things. And then you're saying, you know, is it damaging your treatment? Again, I I can't know. I'd I'd have to evaluate her. Um, And then you said, it seems like a control issue. Um, Yeah, it could be. It could be a control issue. But again, even if it, meaning that the client is trying to dominate the therapist, and that'll happen. You know, people with personality disorders will try to dominate me sometimes. And uh, that's okay. You know, as long as it doesn't break the frame of therapy and I'm, I'm okay with it. I don't mind if a client dominates. You know, I've had clients kind of dictate how the session is run. You know, they'll they'll say, "I don't like the way you run the session. I want to I want to do the sessions this way." And if it seems fine and it and I think it'll help to give them control, you know, they're taking control and power away from me, but but that'll help. Then I'll go with it. You know, so even if it were a control issue, doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. You know, the fact that she has borderline and she's hospitalized quite often for suicide attempts means she is suffering. And if her and her treatment team have agreed that reading the notes is helpful, then, you know, that that seems very advisable. The other thing is, is that even if it's not advisable, 
it's her right to read her session, her session notes. You know, at any time, any patient can ask for their client file and it needs to be given to them under the vast majority of circumstances. So the fact that, you know, no matter what, um, if she feels like reading them, you know, she should. But I, I would guess, Emma, that your friend and the treatment team are, you know, kind of struggling to get the right kind of treatment dialed in to help her at the very least to not attempt suicide. Right. So, and I'm guessing the session note thing doesn't have a lot to do with that. It's just a, just a guess, but I would have to assess the situation. All right, patrons, look at me. I always feel so accomplished when I get to the end. You know, I got, I thought I'd get to some of the, um, non upper tier patron emails, but, but I didn't (laughs) next time it's on my list. Believe me. Like I, I don't know. I'd say once a day, I'm like, Oh, I have that big, long document with all those emails that have yet to be answered on the podcast. And I feel bad for the patrons. And so it's on the list (laughs) one day and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 